we're going to get an ETF in the next six months or at some point very soon. I think more and more people will come to Bitcoin who come for the gains and never even understand the revolution. And what I'm worried about is that if we don't scale the kind of Bitcoin culture, we could end up, you know, 10, 15, 20 years down the line having lost all identity of what it means to be a Bitcoiner, potentially because of Bitcoin's like weird, messy consensus, end up with some unideal protocol changes that don't maximize for like decentralization, don't maximize for censorship resistance. And we end up like having a cut version of like digital gold with, it still has the scarcity, but it doesn't have any of the elements that actually allow us to be like revolutionary technology. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Thank you for continuing to listen to us after we lambasted Bitcoin for an entire episode. We are obviously massively bullish on Bitcoin, but we think it's a good exercise to challenge your own assumptions from time to time. In this episode, we are talking to Danny Knowles. Danny is the executive producer of What Bitcoin Did. We appreciate not only the hustle that has gotten What Bitcoin Did to the top of the podcast game in Bitcoin, but that they have done it without having a sacred cow. Peter and Danny are willing to have some controversial guests and viewpoints, and they don't shy away from pissing people off. This is the mark of real journalism in our view. If the content you are listening to is always petting your perspective, you are not growing as a thoughtful person, and the content creator you're listening to is likely captured. Unlocking Danny in this episode was a pleasure for us. Whenever he contributes during episodes of What Bitcoin Did, it is additive, and his perspective was great in this episode. Danny has been a Bitcoiner since 2016, and he has seen a lot of antics in the space. He has had a front row seat to speak to most of the prominent people. Danny also has a keen interest in the QE as money printing or not question, and we explore that in this episode. We take some serious time to consider the ETF and the good, bad, and ugly potential outcomes from this ETF. He has been well-traveled, and he can confirm that Americans are indeed the fattest people in the world. No matter your opinion on politics, gender, fat people, or which geriatric president you prefer, you can protect your Bitcoin with the legendary cold card Mark IV. The cold card is a lean, mean, sat stacking machine that cares not about your opinions. It simply locks your Bitcoin into the most secure digital space possible. Safe from the prying eyes of hackers, nannies, and most importantly, exchanges. If you are not custodying your Bitcoin, you are leaving yourself open to the most devastating risk in the space. Counterparty risk. We have close personal friends who have been rugged by the likes of FTX and BlockFi. We do not want our listenership rugged. The best way to protect yourself is to take custody. And there is no better self-custody solution than the cold card. Full stop. Use code BCB to get 5% off a cold card Mark IV. Although it feels like it's barely on the horizon, Bitcoin 2024 will be here before you know it. Get the best price on tickets by buying now and use our coupon code BCB for 10% off tickets to Nashville at Bitcoin 2024. So let's get this thing kicked off. We have no agenda either. We're just going to chill out, dude. I've had a long week. I've got a vodka tonic poured. Oh, I'm so jealous. It's 10 a.m. here. I can't do it. I just came. I was actually telling Josh before you got in here, I had a pretty legit fever uh, all day yesterday on duty. 
I just kind of tossed it out. And uh, I'm a huge pussy, by the way. For anyone, for anyone that's wondering, I'm a giant fucking pussy. I was gonna say you definitely had someone check your rectal temp. I'm sure. Yeah, on the ambulance, we did we rectal, got some new rectal. Of course, temp. I had all f- all five other dudes probe me on duty to, to check it. Um, so just a normal shift for you. But uh, yeah, you I'm gotta get the core rec- temp. Kind of in recovery mode, just coming out of it though. You know when you've been sick and you regain normalcy, and you're like, "Fuck, this feels really good." I'm thankful to be a healthy human being. So, so you straight back on the alcohol and yep straight to the to the cocktail which it'll kill the bugs you know <laughs> yeah i mean alcohol on this show danny it cuts both ways maybe we have more fun but the signal definitely plummets so uh there's a happy median though there's a plateau you reach there's gonna be no signal here today so we're okay yeah uh keep keep riffing on what you were saying though i feel like you were hitting a powerful theme about us needing to make a message for a technology that is inherently and fundamentally beautiful but can kind of get pigeonholed into into corners and and segments of belief so we were just like we were talking a little bit about um kind of why i guess why what bitcoin did is how it's differentiated itself why it's been successful and i think a big part of it is the fact that we've been very very reluctant to toe the line um and i think in bitcoin especially it's very easy to to kind of get forced into opinions, um, not sort of think outside the box in some ways. And um, it's wild to me that people don't want divergent opinions in this space. Like, I want to hear from absolutely everyone. It's not just like hardcore Bitcoiners that see the world's a little fuck. Um, So, like, that's been a big push that that we've kind of, over the last two or three years that we've really gone for. Um, And I I was saying, like, it's so weird to me that when we had progressives on the show for the first time, people actually reached out to us and were like, why are you having these fucking cucks on the show? Like I, they, they don't understand that this is like a technology for anyone. Like it, it makes a very big difference to anyone who interacts with it. And we should want to sort of open this tent up to absolutely anyone that wants to come in. Uh, so I, and like, I think that's what you guys do very well is you're very authentically yourselves. And I think it's what, um, what leads to success in any kind of, in, in podcasts, but really in anything. It's, it's true in every profession though, you know, that group think it, everybody tends to, it's just a human nature type thing where I, a good example is the fire service. A lot of things in the fire service have been based scientifically, at least in the last one 10 sec. years. Sorry, one sec. I'm having a fire test right now. In my <laughs> oh, hell yeah. Can you got to leave? One minute? Don't leave. Evacuate, dude. No, don't, don't evacuate. Stay put, dude. You're fine. <laughs> dude, nobody evacuates, by the way. We'll get no, fire yeah, alarms, man. even sometimes for legit shit. I mean, we don't, but occasionally. Wait, Danny, are you on a, you're actually on a boat right now, aren't you? <laughs> it sounds like you need to get in a lifeboat, man, and get the fuck out of there. This is kind of perfect. <laughs> <laughs> it is kind Agency. of perfect. Dude, we'll have smoke in the building, though. His hallway's probably lit up, dude. We'll have smoke in the building, <laughs> yeah, and everybody's just like, I didn't hear it. I don't know. I'm playing Take dumb, us you with know? you while you're crawling hands and knees out of the smoking apartment building. You can, you can give me some tips on how to get out safely. Uh, right, we may see this dude die in front of us, dude. This may be our first what? guest that just bites the dust in front of us, Josh. <laughs> oh, I thought you were saying you saw someone die in front of you. Oh, no. no, no <laughs> not on our podcast, at least. Not yet. We're <laughs> Dark humor yeah, here. Seen Bounce. Some, seen some odd things at work, but never on the podcast. Um, no, what I was getting at, though, is every profession has got this group thing going on. Every profession, mm-hmm. every cult, every religion, every you know instantiation of group people together, there's going to be a leader and there's going to be people that simply follow without thinking for themselves. And this is just the um, where we're at in Bitcoin. It, it's not surprising that it, it happens everywhere. Um, I, in the fire service, I know Dan, you've you've been in our our department for seven years now, but maybe even just a little bit before that, like scientific research being the 
harbinger for how we conduct our business is a new thing in the fire service in the last like 15 to 20 years. It used to be like, we just do this because we do it. And that's the way it's always been done. And as ridiculous as that sounds, like there's been a lot of UL studies and things that show like, oh, this is the proper way to do things because we can show that this is how fire behavior works under these different situations. It's very surprising how, you know, we just did things because it's the way we did them very until very recently. And And some of those things were literally the exact opposite opposite. of what science tells you is good, like flow paths. We won't get too deep here on firefighting, but a big thing when you're fighting a structure fire is flow paths. Where is the fire going and where are the pressures at to push the fire different directions? The way we were opening up buildings in like the 80s, even just feeding the fire oxygen, literally the exact opposite of what you're supposed to do scientifically. But as Josh said, they've done it that way since the 50s. The guys in the Bronx, New York have been doing this for decades. It must be the case. No one really had the wherewithal to to zoom out and say, hey, let's completely you know, lay right. this thing bare, totally reassess it. And honestly, kudos to, to firefighting worldwide because it really had a lot of tactics have totally turned over in the last 20 years. They're like the exact opposite of the way guys were trained 30, 40, 50 years ago. But how did it overturn that? Because I feel like that's uh, probably echoed in so many different areas of the world right now. Like, I feel like we need to overturn a lot of the kind of institutional thing. And I don't know how we actually do that. I'm curious how it happened in the fire industry. That would be before Mm. our time. We're going to have to get back to you on that one. Yeah. I think a lot of people created the resources to do the research. Like, I don't know the history behind there's this huge group called Underwriter Laboratories. They're actually not far from us. And they just started doing a ton of research putting it on film, documenting it, writing studies about Honestly, it. Honestly, I, I think they just got government grants and they had the money to spend on building. They built structures like full-blown uh, residential buildings inside their warehouse and they would just light them on fire. And then they would try different things and they would see what's more effective, what's less effective. So basically a giant laboratory that built full-scale houses and burned them and then just experimented. I Crazy. think the interesting thing about this topic though, guys, is... We often like fail to go back and, and think, how does this happen, right? H- how do groups and movements get so misguided? They often start with great intentions. And then over time, things pivot, they go awry, and it's this slow, you know, thousand cuts deal. If we're going to pick on Bitcoin, which <laughs> our audience may be sick of, by the way, Danny, because our entire last episode is the most risque and full frontal we've ever gotten. We did a full episode on on how Bitcoin could fail. We didn't defend it. We just fucking reamed Bitcoin a new asshole for an hour and a half, which is the first time we've ever done it. But when people just keep repeating tropes, right, that someone said when they first got in over and over again, and they often, they come, they become just like hollow gospel, right? Mm -hmm. And some of that is happening in Bitcoin. Like it feels like, I want to be careful here because I still I still really respect the the intellectual tenacity of many people in this space. But it does feel like even since we've been in in 2017, that a lot of the same shit just keeps getting repeated and repeated as though it's a guarantee. And and there is it feels to me maybe it's just the phase we're at and how we're feeling. But but it almost needs a reset of the don't trust verify ethos needs to be injected into the community right now. It's kind of how I'm feeling. I don't know how you guys are feeling. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that. I think it's also like proper end of bear market sort of emotion. Um, yes. Like, I think you just get sick of hearing the same thing from the same people. Um, it feels like every time you get bull market, you get a new influx of interesting people who kind of change yeah. the narrative a little bit. 
Uh, and we're like we're seeing that on the podcast. Like we we would desperately want new people to speak to. Um, and there's just not loads of interesting people coming in right now. But at the same time, like I, I would defend Bitcoin culture in 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 some ways. Like I think um, I think when you kind of see behind the veil and you see that money, you've been lied to about what money is for your entire life. Um, and you kind of see this thing that's so important in society. It's like one half of every transaction that you'll ever make, and it's the the truth has been kept from you. Um, it kind of opened you up to think, okay, well, what else is a fucking lie? And it turns out like quite a lot of stuff is a lie. Mm. Um, and so I think there's like we see that obviously Bitcoiners love eating, eating steak, and then you see like food companies come out and say that like sugary cereals better for you than steak. And it's like the I think these things just like chip away at your psyche, and it's like well. Are they, is anyone telling me the truth anymore? So I always see it as like a counterculture to sort of institutional thinking in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. And I like, I do love that adversarial nature to Bitcoin and Bitcoin culture. But at the same time, like I agree with you, it's gone too far. I think a lot of them are like now just hollow tropes that people say and they don't really believe in. Um, but I do, I do think that kind of signifies the end of this kind of like washout of people. We just need new ideas, new people. And, and I think that will come when we have bull market. Bull yeah. market fix everything. Right. The, the other thing, <laughs> nice. it, it's, it's like, you know, in a relationship, things get a little rocky. Sometimes you just need to go have sex, just pound each other out. Yeah. That's how Bitcoin is. Like we start fighting, things get a little chippy. We just need a pump. Um, I will say this too. The, what you have to be careful of, and I'm talking to myself here, is that the voices that tend to maybe annoy you or irritate you, sometimes the loudest voices, right? In the spheres of discourse we swim in are the most extreme. And this is true of just all sorts. Until they're humbled, which we tend to see quite often and enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. And the reality is most people just lie somewhere in the middle, right? You guys continue to scale and dominate, you know, having diverse perspectives on, yes, you hear the loud voices that call you guys cucks and all this stuff, but the numbers speak for themselves. People love the show, right? And and I think we've seen some evidence of that too. Yes, we had some people come at us after our, our show last week that listened to 10 minutes, got pissed and, and ripped us apart on Twitter or whatever. But overall, Josh, I'm, I don't know if you agree, but I'm I'm amazed and excited by the reception of this episode. I mean, we absolutely battered Bitcoin as best we could. Good. We played the inversion for an hour and a half and everybody loves it. The thing's mm-hmm. getting downloaded like mad. People are are supportive. And that is a testament to the, the Bitcoin community. I was excited to see our first troll who actually spent, this guy was writing, bitching about our episode for like 15 minutes straight. Just a diatribe. This guy living in his mom's basement, sending like paragraph after paragraph. He was literally quoting what we said, calling us idiots for various reasons. I was just heartened by that because we haven't had that yet. And it really... It made me feel like we arrived in a little small way, Dan. It really did. Inv- but, is that yeah, really we haven't the first had some- you've had? Yeah, no, we've no, had the, haters, the first but they true, like courteous hater, like the guy who really invested in it. Yeah, yeah, deep Love investment it. of hatred. It, it, yeah. it well, took it to another level. Um, you're only going to get more of them. But I'm curious to hear. But like, I've not listened to this episode yet. What were the best takeaways from it? The one that seemed to really bother people the most was we talked about Austrian economics versus Keynesianism. And Mm -hmm. we basically went back and forth on like, how sure are we that Austrian economics is really right? And how sure are we that Keynesian economics is totally wrong? And 
neither of us are experts on that domain at all. We're firefighters. We're not economists. So we've both done a fair amount of reading, listening, and you know, kind of parsing through this. And we gave it our best effort to try to contrast and compare them and steel man both sides, or especially the Keynesian side, because we tend to agree with the Austrian side personally. At least I can say that yeah. for myself. Um, and this dude just went off his rocker about how we didn't know what the fuck we were talking about with about Austrian economics. That Dan said that Keynesians had some thoughtful uh, people involved. He's like, there's not a fucking thoughtful Keynesian economic economist out there. Like this just ridiculous shit that the guy was he's clearly got, you know, his book to sell and isn't considering the other side at all. Although he did have some good points. I'm not going to and I'm not going to the guy knew what he was talking about, but it was just like such malice and hate in this. It was fucking hilarious. We we hit uh, a number of things too. We did this episode with I don't I don't know if you know Daz and Seb. They do Looking Glass Education. So the four of us just brought a number of points. We talked about you know bugs, including that you know the value overflow exploit. We talked about mining risks. Um, we talked about narrative risks. Right at the end of the day, like culture and society needs to adopt this thing. Just because you love it and hold it doesn't mean it's inevitable. Um, scaling issues. So we we covered a lot of different stuff, and we tried to do so not to stand up cans and then just blast them away, but to let people sit in the muck for a little bit and realize, as we said at the beginning of the episode, this is a game of probabilities, not certainties. So some of mm-hmm. these the, these FUDs aren't zero probabilities, right? And so, yeah, a lot of them may be less than likely, but but it's not as though you should think about them once and never think about them again. A lot of these risks are present, even if the probabilities are low and they're worth assessing. No, I totally agree. I, I mean, I I'm not surprised that this episode went down well. Like, I want if you've got a good idea, you should test it. Like, challenge this as much as you can. Um, I'm I'm curious. Like, so I've been thinking a lot about maybe what the sort of uh, potential attack vets are for Bitcoin, and the one that I think is or sort of scares me the most is the idea that we basically like I I'm I came to Bitcoin for the gains, stayed for the revolution. Like, is that cliche? Like, that was a hundred percent me. Um, and. I think you can have the the gains without the revolution, but you can't have the revolution without the gains. And mm-hmm. so what I'm worried about is that like now we're going into this period, we're going to get an ETF in the next six months or at some point very soon. Um, I think more and more people will come to Bitcoin who come for the gains and never even understand the revolution. Um, and very what true. I'm worried about is that if we don't scale the kind of Bitcoin culture, that um, we could end up you know, 10, 15, 20 years down the line uh, having lost all identity of what it means to be a Bitcoiner, um, and then potentially because of Bitcoin's like weird, messy consensus, end up with some unideal protocol changes that don't maximize for like yeah. decentralization, don't maximize for censorship resistance, and we end up like having a cooked version of like digital right. gold with it still has the scarcity, but it doesn't have any of the elements that actually allow us to be like revolutionary technology. And it's like that idea, that fourth turning idea of like. Hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men. And I feel like at the moment we're in that like first period, maybe leading that first period of like, it's been hard. We've got like some very solid Bitcoiners right now that are like, I think absolutely doing the right thing by being toxic and pushing back against a lot of um, sort of ulterior motives. And then what happens in the future when we have like weak men, are we going to basically cut Bitcoin by kind of by accident without ever like scaling the Bitcoin culture enough? Is it? Are you concerned about these ETFs owning and controlling such a massive amount of it and then having more influence? Or is it more that a lot of the people that are very influential in the space now obviously probably hold a significant amount of Bitcoin. They'll get so wealthy that they probably 
or could just leave the space altogether because they don't need it or they're just they're wealthy. They just don't they can go fuck off the rest of their lives. And it's not such a um I don't know. I think I think you're right in that people are more attuned to be hardcore when they're more skin in the game than when they when they're you know when they have the ability to just leave and they don't necessarily need it anymore a lot of those voices could leave the space potentially is that i guess which side of that concern are you on 100 percent. like i think it's everything i think it's both those things um like of, of people that i speak to it's so common for someone to say like oh i've got one more cycle in me i've got two more cycles in me then i'm out i'm gonna go race cows on a ranch or whatever um like bitcoin takes out of you it's like very it's like dog years right it's it's tiring it's emotional like people don't want to stay kind of like in the in the fire the entire time um so i think like over the next couple of cycles we'll see a lot of bitcoiners kind of just leave and and live their lives and it's like who comes in to fill that void i think is the important yeah. thing i think um, you can arguably in, already i was just sorry, gonna say you, you can already see that with like guys like maybe this isn't the best this is the person that comes to mind for me it may trigger some people eric voris like mm-hmm. that guy was like the original, um, you know, first generation dude who was very, very Austrian, very free market, very, I mean, he very open-minded where he is interested in a ton of other protocols and stuff too. But people quickly forget that guy got it down to his bone, what Bitcoin was about. And we see less and less of his type and more and more of this financial type in Uh this third epoch, or is it the fourth at this point? Either way. We're seeing a lot, like if you go to like Pacific Bitcoin, not criticizing them at all, but most of the people on stage are finance people and people that are running podcasts. They're not yeah. really the the hardcore like coders. They're not the people that, you know, are the Austrian econ front runners. These are more talking head type people. Um, I guess you could kind of argue that it's getting softer already since the first generation. A hundred percent. I mean, I go into Bitcoin in like 2016. Um, I don't remember macro dominating the conversation the same way it does today. Like, right? the, yes. I um, I had like zero background in economics before I got into Bitcoin. Like Bitcoin was my first real taste of that. Um, and probably like you guys, like Austrian economics in that sort of 2016, 2017 time period was like the only economics really I, I remember people talking about. So I was kind of exposed to that first um, and then kind of later on had to try and figure out how the real world worked. Um, but uh, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Like the macro has dominated this cycle. And I think that's only going to increase. Like the suits are here and the suits are staying. And yeah. I think w- what's really important though is that uh, like I guess our job as podcasters is to make sure we try and scale the really important elements of Bitcoin as well as just the fact that it's this scarce asset that might make you a little bit richer. Yeah. I wonder if it's that Bitcoin has, be- has gotten to a point where macro actually matters to it. Or if it's the other way around as the, the suits are here and that's why we talk about it so much. I could see the argument being played either direction. But yeah, the answer is I don't really know. Right. Uh, Danny, I think you do bring up a really good question though, which is basically, has the incubation period for Bitcoin been long enough? Like, is this thing ready for the stage that it's about to be on? Because I'll be honest, as I assess this thing, I am extremely bullish on price over the next 10 years. Overall, I'm bullish on freedom tech, but I'm more, uh, I think the probabilities are higher that price goes up than freedom and inclusion improves. Now, I think Bitcoin, no matter how it scales, is going to present some opportunities, 
But there are also avenues and vectors for capture of this thing for sure. Um, and so I think there is a theoretical eventuality where your bags could be enormous and Bitcoin doesn't completely flip over sort of the walled gardens that exist in today's monetary system. I, I um, couldn't agree with that more. Like I, I'm a hundred percent agree. Like I think I'm very, very bullish on price of Bitcoin go up. I'm less bullish. I would say that, um, Bitcoin becomes what I want it to be. Um, I really hope it does. I'm, I, I, my base case is that it, it does. Um, but I think, I think we, I don't know how we make sure that happens apart from trying to instill the importance of like, of censorship resistance. And I, I also wonder whether like the kind of third world adoption, developing world adoption of Bitcoin is one thing that can help us in that element, in that aspect. Like that, that's a people who do understand the importance of decentralization of censorship resistance. And we're seeing like a big uptick there. Um, and and I, I so we're going out to Africa in December. I'm really keen to see like how it's actually being used in in those sort of developing countries. Um, but I think in the US, like in Europe and Western developed nations, like people don't understand the importance, and people won't understand the importance of censorship resistance unless we go through like a very dystopian period first. The the beautiful thing though to to flip bullish here, maybe we'll do this, is Bitcoin is open source and programmable. As mm-hmm. we say, this thing is a fucking slippery hog. And so it, it can't, it, its current instantiation, its current manifestation does have the capability to be expanded, programmed, changed, and inserted in different environments. And this mm-hmm. is totally novel to digital money of, uh, that we've never had anything like this. So, so what does make me incredibly bullish just on the underpinnings of how this thing works is that even if this thing does get slightly commandeered by massive money, there is still potential to do things with it, to improve things on it that can lay the groundwork for freedom and inclusion. And that just can't happen with, with the, in the current asset environment. Yeah. And that's still my base case. These are just things that I'm concerned about. And, um, and I think need to be, we need to talk about them. We need to pay more attention to, I think. So I think the fact that you guys did an episode looking at the, the you know, potential flaws in Bitcoin is really important. Um, have you ever spoken to a guy called Micah Warren? No. So if you want to dig into like potential threats to Bitcoin, he's someone you should speak to. Um, he, I think he's like a math professor. He's a fucking, he's very, very smart. And he's one of the only people that I've ever spoken to who like has a true deep understanding of Bitcoin and is still very, very skeptical as to whether it works like long term. Hmm. Um, and he I'm has like a whole- I'm assuming you guys have had him on. We've not. Um, we, we, oh, you haven't. I've been speaking to him like privately for a long time. Um, and we will have him on at some point. We've just never, never made it happen yet. But um, he has some really, really interesting takes on on potential kind of failures of Bitcoin. But we should get bullish. This has been very bearish so far. Yeah. Before we get <laughs> bullish, uh, can you can, can you tell our audience who you are? <laughs> we kind of skipped that over for the first twenty five minutes of this. That's okay. No one cares. Everybody um, knows who you are. Let's be real. Yeah, everybody right. knows who you are like here, dude. You're the guy yeah, you're with the, the, like the coming out of nowhere, like awesome question. Like you're like, <laughs> wait, wait, who was that? Oh shit, Danny's in here. The one question to show guy. Uh, yeah, so I'm Danny. I am the producer of What Bitcoin Did, uh, the second best Bitcoin podcast after Blue Collar Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> and the humility to match. That's why you guys are killing it right there. You're basically Peter's puppeteer, right? He just kind of does your bidding and is the front man. The kind of ventriloquy that you pull off with him is quite (laughs) 
amazing. <laughs> I'm basically a short-term memory at this point. He just, he just, every time he stumbles on something. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's so busy. Like, he's fucking doing everything. He's like buying half of Bedford. He's running a football team. He's got a bar. Like, How the fuck so does he, he do all this stuff? Seriously. Like, how does he get all of this shit done? You've honestly never met someone that works so hard. It's actually unbelievable. I, well, we've been to a couple of different conferences where we tried to say hi to him, but between like him talking on a stage and then trying to piss and then like zipping his pants up without catching his dick skin and getting back on stage, he's impossible to actually get a hold of. Like, yeah, the guy's awesome. I, I can't. The tenacity the dude has is second to none. Th- that was a flash piss in Miami. We saw him at, yeah. at the urinal. I mean, it was like he had to have. It, he had it had to he be didn't wet even inside have hands his pants. On There's no way he shook that thing off properly. <laughs> he pissed all over himself. There's no doubt in my mind. Yeah, he does that a lot. Um, <laughs> but no, he, he's like his work ethic is unbelievable. But because he's got so much on, like basically, I've just taken the reins on the podcast as much as I can. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's it, we we're so aligned on stuff. Like we've been working together for such a long time now that like I feel the the kind of trajectory doesn't doesn't change whether it was kind of him at the wheel or me um and so it's worked really well but like the thing's growing like crazy um we just need to reach outside of bitcoiners now i think we we've we've got bitcoiners bitcoiners have saturated Bitcoin. the whole bitcoin market <laughs> exactly you guys need and, to get into aliens dude that's the new aliens or ai like those are the two hot topics you guys need to delve into do you think do you think the aliens thing is a big psyop i don't know i i talked to matt pines for like I, uh, I don't know, an hour at Pacific Bitcoin while I was pretty inebriated. I'm not sure that he was, but I get the feeling he was. And the conversation we had, I really wish we recorded because it was wild. Like, well, he spent, uh, if there's spent anybody out there who I'm sure is it. like, this guy's not a dumbass. Matt is a, an incredibly smart dude. Mm-hmm. He, I don't know. Either he is fully on board with this PSYOP and he's just spreading it through this community and he's some kind of a, a government puppet that's here to like fuck with us all. Or there's aliens. Like those are the only two options in my mind. Yeah, I had I probably had the exact same conversation with him. He must get so sick of us. Um, I'm sure. But he seemed. But to I like was. It, uh, I think he loves. I was it. talking to him for like an hour about this stuff, asking him every fucking question under the sun. And like the last question I asked him, I was like, Matt, I'm going to ask you one more question. I need you to be honest. If you lie to me, I'm going to be so disappointed. Are you an alien? And uh, he promised <laughs> he wasn't. So <laughs> <laughs> he's actually a lizard. Yeah. one of the lizard people he, he does love talking about it when he came he on here we talked aliens for like an hour and it's fascinating man with the clearances he's had the places he's been the research he's done how level-headed and rational he is that's the problem um, i have with him i want him to go like deep down the rabbit hole in a hurry and he's in he's like in the mode where he's like no i got to do it gradually because it'll scare everybody if i get there right away like, yeah no, i want the wild speculation go. it's crazy Danny, here's my next question for you. Um, it feels like listening to what Bitcoin did that you often, especially with with macro or economic people, come in with questions you want answered. And a question that I have sensed you've been trying to nail down for yourself or for your audience is one we've been mulling around for for years now, which is what is directionally accurate in terms of how we talk about QE and money printing? You've had Snyder on, you've had Lynn on, you've had people on different sides. But I've appreciated the fact that you've brought Snyder on. And when you, when you did it live with, with him and Lynn in Miami, you said, gun to your head, is QE money printing? I want your high-level takeaways from all these discussions you've had with all these incredibly smart researchers and thinkers. Walk over to the feeder, get a handful of feed, and just let these goats graze right out of your hand is what Dan's yeah. asking for. How, how, how do you 
put this together in your head right now in terms of how we talk about monetary policy and, and what's fair in terms of how we characterize it? So the thing that I think is the, like the funniest part of that, that question is that, like, so like you said, we had Lynn and uh, Jeff on stage together in Miami, both like fucking geniuses. I really like them both. Even though Jeff doesn't like kind of get Bitcoin for whatever reason, I still think he's very, very smart. I've learned loads from him. So you have these like two leading economists on stage and you ask them what seems to be like a very simple question, like is QE money printing? Um, and they they can't agree. Like there's no definitive answer. And the the crazy thing is like you can say is like you can look back historically in the present and in the future, like what was the monetary policy? And the like two leading economists cannot give you an answer. And then you like compare and contrast that to Bitcoin where from like, inception to infinity we know the monetary policy yes. and like like i said earlier like i came to bitcoin way before i came to economics like i didn't i this is not a world that i've been in um and so like i find the kind of big fugazi like financial engineering behind the scenes that like just makes no sense mind-blowing like i don't understand how people can't tell you what's happening in like an actual definitive way um so that's like that's my favorite that's my favorite part of the entire conversation. Like when we asked Lynn and Jeff that, they went on, you know, a 20-minute tirade getting into like the financial plumbing of how commercial banks operate with the central bank and like no one fucking understands that shit. And then you look at Bitcoin right. and it's just it's simple, it works. We know the monetary policy to infinity. And it's like right. how is that not just a better system? I just listened to that again today because I wanted to be ready for this conversation. And Lynn's so having listened to them both back to back, I'm like, okay, what Lynn has to say, I'm, I have a proclivity to go with that side because it's kind of inherently how I believe it works, Same. which doesn't necessarily mean it's true. But the reason that she took the side of that it is money printing is because in order for the central bank to produce the money, they have to just create an asset out of thin air. The asset mm -hmm. is then exchanged for the money. So what you're, you're, you're not allowing money to get drawn out of the base economy, right? There's a problem, right? Problems happening. Problem needs money to solve. Money has to come from somewhere. It either has to get drawn out of the economy, being causing a deflationary force, or alternatively, we just make this fake asset with more fake money, and now these things balance themselves out, and we can't. We don't call it money printing because there's an asset, quote unquote, right? Although it doesn't uh, cause any real effect in the real economy, it has the it has the effect of not causing an effect. You know what I mean? Because mm -hmm. yes. otherwise the money would have had to come out of the economy. And that's where mm. then Jeff goes on like a 20 minute diatribe about why that isn't true. But his explanation just in on its face to me listening to it, not that he was being dishonest, but it's so much more convoluted and complicated that I just couldn't follow it as well, I guess is really what I, what it comes down to. No, I tell you, like, I, I can't follow that stuff. Like it gets into the, the plumbing of how banks work. Like it's very, very confusing, but, um, so I'm with you, like I tend to side with Lynn, mainly because I've spent more time with her. I think she's like an amazing on almost anything you ask her about. Um, yeah. But I don't know, like this is a, this is a, a big Fugazi. Like what, how, how, what are you meant to take from any of this? What like, does, they can't even agree whether like the central bank has power or not. Like <laughs> does Jerome Powell even know what he's fucking doing? And like the impact that it's having. And I don't think he does. So like, how is that the optimal system that we're living under? Totally. It's like you know, Chuck I e. think Santa Claus. <laughs> I do think Snyder made a good point, which was 
I forget which one of you it was, whether it was it was you or Peter, but it was some one of you asked sort of like, what what is the even the point of this whole discussion? And, and Snyder pushed back a little bit and said, well, the point is that if we can't identify the problem, we're not properly going to be able to identify the solution. Um, here's been my trajectory as I assess this. And this is our, our path into Bitcoin is a little different than yours. We were far from experts, but we were into finance and econ, and that's how we found Bitcoin. So mm-hmm. our our like big hobby on the side, a lot of it was was this sort of stuff, and then Bitcoin entered the fray because of that. So we do come from more of the financial econ lens. And what is startling, to a point you made a second ago, we are average dudes. We don't work full-time in finance, but for average people that don't work full-time in finance... I can't imagine anyone has more time than Josh and I to invest in reading about economics, right? <laughs> like if you're not if you're not an economist or working in finance, it's, it would be very unlikely you spend more time through the years than we do reading this stuff. And it still confuses the shit out of me. And here's been my arc of how I assess monetary policy. At first, it seems very simple. And this is the case for a lot of Bitcoiners. It's just straight up money printing, money printer go bird, Jerome Powell cranking the wheel. Then as you start to really read the mechanics behind it, you go, oh, fuck, it is more complex than that. And you start to sort of second guess. But for me, when I think about what is directionally accurate and appropriate, I do simple back or I circle back to the fact that, no, it's actually pretty simple. I say that for a couple of reasons. Josh mentioned this a second ago. When I think what Snyder underestimates is the significance of manipulation at a foundation, at a foundational level. When you implicitly suggest that you are a backstop at the foundation, it it reverberates through the entire system and changes behavior and recklessness all the way up the stack, right? Mm-hmm. And so I understand that when you assess broad money, you zero in on commercial banking and say that's how most of it's happening. But when there is this ever-present Fed put and this understanding in the system that, don't worry, if you fuck up too bad and you're too big to fail, you're okay, that never lets the underbrush burn away. And that leads to exorbitant and excessive credit creation, debt loads, and all this other stuff. So I I think if I was to pick on Snyder, which is adorable for a firefighter to do this, but I'm going (laughs) to do it anyways, I would say he's underestimating how significant... Yes, it's a smaller layer at the foundation, but how significant those reverberations are. Last thing I'm going to say on this topic, I think the best, most nuanced, well-rounded exploration of this, it is a long piece. It comes from the Queen, Lynn Alden. She has a piece from, I think, a few years ago. It's, it's titled Banks, QE, and Money Printing. We'll link it in the notes. It's one of the best explorations of this. And she gets into more of the complexities of why it is it looks more like money printing in a fiscal dominant environment where deficits are being monetized through QE. If that doesn't make sense to you, that's okay. We're kind of in the weeds, but we'll link this in the notes. She also calls Snyder a cuck at the end of that piece. <laughs> Just outright. <laughs> <laughs> so do you think that backstop, though, that's kind of Fed backstop will always be there? Because I think it may, but not without destroying the US dollar. Mm. I think as long as this system holds together in the in the way that it is now it will be but there is going to come a day which you just organ which you just said there where it that will be the destructive part of it like if you continue mm-hmm. backstopping it you have to continue the unwind and people lose complete confidence in the money itself and that's the that's the end of the road 
I think know. we're I seeing the beginning be. of it too. Like th- these things unwind over decades, not years. And so it, o- it often happens so slowly in front of your eyes, you can't recognize it. But there are a lot of ways in which the world is demonstrating it's getting multipolar. Uh, sovereign balance sheets are starting to diversify. You're seeing gold, you're seeing different currencies be stacked. Obviously, Bitcoiners presume that eventually Bitcoin will show up. So I think there there is some movement towards fraying of, of USD hegemony. I know some people would counter argue that, but uh, I think we're starting to see that trend. I think that's going to continue, especially in a in a debt environment that's just mathematically unsustainable. I would probably like, yeah, I maybe push back on that. Like, I think um, it, it's so fucked already. Like, we had bank loads of bank failures this year. There's probably been a time realistically where the majority of banks in the U.S. have been effectively insolvent and managed to yep. just kind of ride the wave. Um, but I don't think that the U.S. dollar hegemony is um, hegemony is actually being challenged. Like I think, if anything, it's getting stronger. Like I think the U.S. dollar will be the last shitcoin to fall. I think everything's going to fall back to the dollar first. So I think, in in essence, really, the dollar is going to only get stronger um, until Bitcoin. Kind of milkshake theory type. Yeah, type I I, I, can, I completely yeah. buy that. Yeah, it's it's. Uh... It's almost sometimes feels like an exercise in futility to map these things out. And that's mm-hmm. why I, I do resonate with your point of going back to the basics of what's transparent, what works, and what clearly fills a void to decomplexify and make our monetary system more transparent and equitable. And Bitcoin is so obviously that, and there's just no real competition right now. To, yeah. to, to achieve those ends. And it's hard to imagine those things I just mentioned aren't going to be in high demand over the next couple of decades. I think it's important as well to think about this and just go back to first principles generally. Um, Elon Musk, I bring him up a lot as an example, but he started, you know, tons, at least four or five extremely successful companies. And most of the way he's done that is by going back to first principles. Like nobody ever thought SpaceX would have a, a rocket that would actually get off the ground. They did that. Then they said they were going to land these rockets. They ended up doing, they're, they're so successful at landing rockets at this point. They have a better, a better chance of landing their rockets successfully than most companies have of launching them successfully. Is that and true? All of I this goes that. back to That's his insane. idea of, yeah, isn't that crazy? It's all back to first principles. Like his, he goes to the drawing board and tells the engineers, he said the, 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 the biggest problem most engineers have is not that they, they're trying to fix a system, but he's like, why do we even have this system in the first place? The biggest problem they have is fixing something that doesn't, isn't necessary. So throw away as much complexity as possible and drill down to the, the basic principles of how does this system work and completely negate everything else that's superfluous. It's got to be gone. And so putting that in the lens of Bitcoin and money, Bitcoin is the most simple, as complex as it can be on the technological side. For the fundamental properties of money, Bitcoin is dead simple. It's very easy to understand. And it hits all of the properties as perfectly as it can. It's imperfect, but it's the best thing that we have to use as money. And so from there, it's a lot easier to assess the landscape, in my view, than it is to try to think about this overly complex, I would say purposely complex financial system that is there to mystify all of us midwits. So we don't know what the fuck is going on. Yeah. I mean, again, couldn't agree more. And I, I the, the thing that I know we've kind of come back to this a few times, but the thing that genuinely I'm I'm sort of 
quite concerned about though is how how much an ETF may get in the way of, of that kind of evolution towards Bitcoin. Mm. Um, I mean, it will, I think well, it's going to happen either way. But oh, it's one hundred percent. I happen. agree with you though. Um, but I, and I guess it depends in what way it happens. Like I, I hope that we get some ETFs that actually allow you to take custody of Bitcoin. Um, I know the Black Rocks isn't meant to, um, but it, it's something that I, I'm very concerned about. Because I think it, I don't think it's a stepping stone. I think it's actually a massive blockade in what Bitcoin can and should become. Do you think this is kind of off topic, but on topic with the ETF? There's a lot of people that think that the gold ETF is manipulated, or a mm-hmm. lot of paper gold is holding down the price of gold that gold would potentially be worth maybe ten thousand dollars or some other ridiculous number by now if they hadn't, you know, commercialized or financialized gold uh, the way they have. Do you have that concern about the, with this ETF that they're going to somehow manipulate the price using being able to hold a massive amount of it and then use paper to push it around? Yeah, I mean, I people talk about Bitcoin being manipulated now and like manipulate it down as much as you can. Like, I want to buy a load of this stuff, um, but like I do worry about that. And like I, I've spoken to Lawrence Lapard about this a little bit, um, and I love Lawrence, but he's he's been sort of directionally directionary directionally correct on gold for like a very long time um but the markets never really acknowledge that and that's one thing that i'm i'm kind of concerned about with bitcoin um but then on the other hand i'm also worried that the the price of bitcoin rips while losing the fundamental value of bitcoin so i can i can kind of see it both ways but i'm just i'm concerned that like too much um financialization of bitcoin ruins it one way or the other and i don't know which way that'll be um, yeah. But yeah, I can 100% see that as an issue. And I think like there's, I don't, I don't want to be 60 years old and be in, La- in Lawrence's position. Um, yeah. The, it's funny you say that. There's a guy whose newsletter I used to subscribe to back in like 2009 and 2010. His name was Doug Casey. And he was harping back then that this is insane. Like these 0% rates are crazy. And his, yep. his directional bet for his newsletter was basically that rates have to go up. So I'm going to basically short treasuries. From, I mean, he so he would have been right. Thirteen years later, yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. Like, <laughs> yeah. sorry, dude, if you were following that dude's advice heavily, like you're going like 90 percent, like let's send this motherfucker, you got wiped out over the last ten to twelve years, and yeah, yeah that concern is real. And being early and being wrong are the exact same thing. Exactly. Yes, and it's one of the biggest reasons you should think. Twice, three times, four times over about taking leverage on Bitcoin mm-hmm. because you may be right on a 10 year time frame, but if you're wrong on a shorter time frame and your cash flow is not rock solid, you're going to get fucked over. Yeah, I've been um, blown up on leverage on Bitcoin. I mean, like 2017, I thought I was like trading God, everyone's a genius in a bull market. I got blown up. Oh, on, I was there too. Yeah. yeah. It happens yeah. to everyone. Like the only answer to should I leverage Bitcoin is no. <laughs> Dude, the other thing, Danny, that I think adds validity to your concern about ETF capture is I am amazed at how few people self-custody. I, I know yep. a lot of people feel different and Swan's quoting stats of 80% of, you know, 83% of people are pulling their coins off. But this is for a highly, in the swan circumstance, this is a highly concentrated group of, of more ardent Bitcoiners. But in my own life experience, so me personally, 
Josh and I have been through this process for years now. Frictions I felt years ago when I first embarked on it, even though I was into Bitcoin and scared shitless to self-custody. But even people in my life that I'm trying to coach through this process, there's tremendous trepidation. And there's still a large percentage, a concerning percentage of Bitcoiners who don't know how to take this step, aren't taking this step, or aren't doing it with their full stack. So the concern there is that so many people, especially uh, you know those with a lot of capital, they're just waiting for an opportunity to buy this in a brokerage account and not take self-custody. And that is going to be, you can say, a centralizing force. I know it's still very powerful that you can do it, but a lot of people aren't going to know Bitcoin in the most profound capacity, right? Because yeah. of their unwillingness to self-custody. And, and, and we, could, we could be in an environment where the vast, quickly, in an ETF environment, price pumps, you have a huge, huge new swath of people come in, new order of magnitude of adoption. And you can quickly flip over where most people that quote unquote hold Bitcoin don't self-custody it. And that's a potentially concerning environment. I mean, that's just definitely going to happen. Um, I think like every, pretty much every Bitcoin ETF is custodying with Coinbase. So they're just yeah. going to be sat on a whole pile more coins. But I, the thing that I massively, massively will push back against is that anyone that says self-custody is hard and that it's a technical challenge is just wrong. Self-custody is not yes. hard in any way. It's it's not a technical challenge. It's a mental challenge. It's are you willing to take responsibility yeah. for your for your finances? And like, if the answer is yes, anyone can do it. My dad could do it. My granddad can do it. Like, I promise you it's not hard. And there's tons of guides that give you like a very clear walkthrough of how to do it, how to store your keys. Um, so it really annoys me when you hear even like good Bitcoiners saying that, oh, it's a technical challenge. It's absolutely not. It's just whether you're willing to stop being a pussy. Um, <laughs> couldn't, and- couldn't agree more. Yeah, it's just you're, we're unwinding a paradigm. We're unwinding a perspective that everyone has that custody of your assets is outsourced. And that mm-hmm. has proven, my point a second ago, that has proven to be a stronger current than I thought it was going to be, especially when you're someone that has self-custodied for a long time, moves Bitcoin all the time, and you're like, how can this dude not take this step, even for yeah. people that own a fair amount of it? Like, wh- what is the fucking friction? But the reality is, it's there, because tons of people have a hard time taking this step. And as you said, it's it's mostly mental. But that yeah. doesn't change the height of the hurdle for a lot of yeah. people, you know? No, I agree. Like, the, but... So it's not a technical hurdle; it's a it's a mindset hurdle. Um, but there's such like there's such good solutions now. Like you can have you know multi sig. I know Unchain now do like multi jurisdictional multi sig, where you can kind of do like a collaborative custody model. Like I don't think that most people need that. Like I think most people are fine with just a hardware wallet. Um, but there's there is solutions out there that take the kind of if you're trusting three custodians over one, it's slightly better. You're still going to get rugged at some point probably. Um, but I just think taking that step is not hard. Even if you take it with like a tenth of your stack to start with, you'll realize, oh, fuck, I was worrying about this for no reason. And right. six months later, you'll be entirely self-custody. For sure. Um, so, but I, I 100% agree that the vast majority of coins will never be self-custody now. Like the ETF ends that, like it's over. Um, and I think just growing the pie as much as we can in terms of people we can actually get to to take that step is really important. Getting like real Bitcoiners holding their, holding their coins. Um, but, the majority will definitely just be paper Bitcoin that Grayscale own or BlackRock or name it, anyone else. Yeah. One of the things that Jeff Snyder goes on about is how Bitcoin's fixed supply keeps it from becoming, like his, his basic idea is that 
money needs some elasticity in order to grow and shrink with the market, right? Because you want everything to be kind of static, at least price-wise, ideally. And so he says Bitcoin probably can't fill that because obviously it's deflationary. Everything gets you know deflated over time. You're getting paid less Bitcoin over time. I'm getting paid less. People just are. It's a it's a paradigm shift that is very difficult for people to wrap their heads around, especially coming from the paradigm we're in with fairly large inflation. What are your thoughts on this kind of being a duopoly of people storing their value with Bitcoin, um, kind of the way they do now, but maybe governments using it to back currencies at some point because they've lost all credibility. So they'll hold some Bitcoin kind of like they've done in the past with gold. They'll issue their you know paper dollars or whatever they're going to call it on top of Bitcoin. We all know they'll blow that up eventually. But in the meantime, we've got a reset. We've got currency that can be, quote unquote, elastic so that they can keep playing their games. But we also have the ability to protect ourselves with a, a store of value asset like Bitcoin in the interim. Do you see that as a step in between potential hyper Bitcoinization or is that that does seem like more of a base case from my perspective in a more realistic world. Yeah, I think um, I find it really hard to kind of extrapolate how this actually plays out in, you know, over 30, 50 years. Um, but I would put more credence in that being the final state of Bitcoin rather than full hyper-Bitcoinization. Um, I, I, it's, it's really hard to like quantify why I even feel that way. Um, but I, I find... I find the idea that like central banks will hold Bitcoin like they've traditionally traditionally held gold um, back currencies with Bitcoin. I think that's very likely. Hyper Bitcoinization may be like a bit of a pipe dream. Maybe it happens. I don't know. Um, but yeah, no, I think that's definitely going to be the interim step, and it may actually end up being the final step of Bitcoin. It may just be this like scarce asset that kind of underpins a lot of the financial system. Um, and real on that question as well, do you believe that? Do you think Snyder's got a good point there, or how do you view that? Do you think the world could work? well on a deflationary currency or uh, alternatively because bitcoin can be subdivided almost infinitely how do you think do you think that we could make that work um i think so i think so but i don't know um but i think it kind of gets back to what jeff booth talks about where i feel like jeff snyder is trying to uh, think of bitcoin how it fits into the current system and mm. jeff booth would push back and be like no we need to think about this like new paradigm you need to stop with that way of thinking and think about this in a in a completely new world um above my pay grade i don't know the answer to that question like it's uh it's something that i think about a lot but i've never come to like a definitive place on it it, it uh i did also enjoy that episode with booth and was that gammon yeah that you pronounce his last name um and I think that that you describe the difference between those two as well. Jeff's mm-hmm. kind of sitting there over and over again going, dude, I think this this entire system is reorienting itself. And on the flip side, the thought is, that's completely unrealistic, Jeff. There's no way it's going to fit yeah. into this system, right? And it's going to play by the same rules. And that's a, that's a battle that's going to be waged for a long time. And I, I don't feel... The rubber really starts to hit the road there when Bitcoin's a lot bigger than it is now. I don't know what that number is, 10, 20 trillion dollars. This thing really starts rubbing up against bigger asset classes and you start to see what's the true black hole, the fiat system or Bitcoin, right? It seems like Bitcoin has the incentives behind it, but man, fighting from the high ground is helpful in warfare and the incumbents have a propensity to, to be more 
sticky than most imagine. Um, yeah. And and with that argument, like I think I think George Gammon made some really good points. Um, and again, like you say, it was basically they were just arguing from either within the system or in this n- completely new paradigm, this new system. Um, and I don't know which one's likely to be right. They're both far more qualified to like talk on this than I am. Um, but I know that I want to live in the world that Jeff Booth talks about. Like yes, that, yeah. that's where I want the future to go and I hope it can. Yeah. And that's where this thing does become somewhat ideological. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we talk about this I progression in Bitcoin. At first it's idiotic, then it's interesting, then it's important, then it's imperative. And we, we added a, a fifth one of, then it becomes sort of ideological where you start realizing this is more than just a position in my portfolio. This is a manifestation of digital freedom and sovereignty and financial inclusion that I want to see manifest on this planet. And that is part of the reason that I hold Bitcoin. I love that. That's exactly, that's 100% why I hold Bitcoin. Like it started, like it, it's, it's like a, I guess, a, an extrapolation of come for the gain, stay for the revolution. And like, I feel mm-hmm. like we've, we've had some gains. Times are like pretty good, really. I mean, we're at what, $28,000? Like it's come a long way, even though we're down however many percent. Um, but, while I, I want some gains, I definitely I want the world to change with Bitcoin. That's like that is why I'm here. Mm, amen. Amen. Let's peel back the curtain on what Bitcoin did a little bit. Let's do uh, it. This is one of my missions with this episode. <laughs> Let's start with uh, the the softball of uh, what guests or thought leaders have impressed you the most. Who are the handful of people you you guys have hung out with, had on the show that you're like, that was unbelievable. We'd hang out with them all the time. Uh, it's probably like pretty easy to pick because it's just the people who've had on the show the most. Like the ones that I like hanging out with the most, talking to the most, are like Harry Suddock. I think he's fucking brilliant. He's I think awesome. like he's yeah. The man. I know he's been on your show a few times. Like he's so yeah. good, and he's also like a lot of fun after the show. We always go get beers and that kind of thing. Um, I really appreciate um Matt O'Dell. Like he he holds Peter's feet to the fire a lot. Um, but I think just like morally comes from the the correct place. Um, I think he's a really important person. I really like American Huddle. Like it's those. It's like the 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 Bitcoiners I want to hang out with. It's the truth. Like it's who I want to go yeah. for a beer with. Um, they're my favorites. Um, I mean, I love like Preston and James Lavish and the macro people like Lynn. But uh, yeah, it would be it be that group really. Yeah, I could imagine Huddle could get pretty wild with a couple of drinks in him. Yeah, some fun ass shit. He, he's uh, there's been he's some wild wife. ones with him. And Jin Seth and stuff. You got you guys have had him on so many times. It's that it, uh, kind of all blends together. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Have you, you ever guys? About- have you guys ever had a guest on and you don't have to say who, where you're just immediately like, oh shit, this is not going well. Like things are stiff. You can't loosen them up. They're just just robots, and they they're what? either panic stricken from being on the show, or they're just not somebody that really gives you much more than like a yes no or short answer. We, we've definitely had that, um, I think less and less. So now, like whenever we, we're lining up a show, if it's a new guest that's not been on before, um, I tend to like jump on a call, do a little pre-interview with them and, and kind of see what they're about. So it's a, a pretty good way of kind of avoiding that. But we've definitely had it in the past. And it's quite an intimidating environment to come into because um, like we're doing it in person. We get like these Airbnbs when we'll have like five cameras, we have lights. Like it, it's, it feels like you're going into a studio. So we definitely have it where people will come in and they'll be a bit, you know, a bit shaky at the start or whatever. I mean, like I was nervous to come on here. It's not like talk coming on a show and like talking about yourself is not necessarily that comfortable. So we definitely have that. 
But in terms of like people we've actually had, got like 10 minutes in and be like, fuck, what do we do now? Uh, <laughs> we've not had that in a while, <laughs> but we have had We've it. had this, we've had issues before where there was like a tactical problem. You guys don't have this because you don't do so many remotes, but like where somebody has a shitty internet connection and there's like a three mm-hmm. second delay. We went through yeah. a whole episode with that and the editing nightmare that w- ensued was just not worth it. Like we were just like, if we ever have this again, fuck it, we'll just reschedule it because it was a nightmare. That's an easy way out for you guys too. If you ever get into a conversation, you, you're like, oh, can't hear this you is going badly. Be like, yeah, sorry, we'll uh, we'll do this another time. We're not cut, we're not connecting. We, we haven't done that yet, but it's brilliant. If that it ever just completely play. tanks, just be like, we lost the files, dude. Riverside fucked up. Uh, didn't come through. <laughs> I'm so sorry. We'll have to reschedule. Uh, yeah. Booked for the next couple of months. We'll round back. Yeah. Whenever that happens, I'll know exactly what's going on now. <laughs> Hopefully they don't listen have you, to this Have you guys episode. ever had it, though, where you've had someone uh, come on and just, like, got nothing yeah. to say to them? No, it wasn't. It, it's just, like, doesn't flow as well as, as you'd hope, you know? Yeah. And the two of us, like, there's also this thing, we've talked about this before, maybe not on the show, but we've got a certain amount of banter between the two of us, and mm-hmm. it's usually, like, there's, there's certain guests where we don't feel necessarily as comfortable, like, slinging whatever we want to say, because it's, like... There's just certain people that are very, they give off this very professional tone. And you're like, God, I can't make, I can't drop a dick joke in this. That would be really strange for this person. So then we, we both are kind of like locked up tight for the whole episode. Yeah. Not so much recently, but like maybe early on when we weren't so comfortable in our own skin on this. You got to yeah, let that out though. You never know what the, like the, the suit <laughs> business person is going to think. They might fucking love it. <laughs> they might. They might. Yeah. I, I do think we've, we've grown into that more. Like, I think Uh, we've gotten, I mean, that, not that we're, but as you do scale a little bit and you get more affirmation and you develop an audience, you get more comfortable being yourself. I think you also, I don't know if you guys feel the same way, but we've just gotten more selective with who comes on here. If we don't feel like they're going to fit the vibe and be able to hang out, like it doesn't matter how big profile they are. It's, it's exhausting for us, right? Some shows are life-giving, a ton of fun, relaxing. Other shows take it out of you. And the longer we've done this project, the more we're like, we want to have people on here that we're genuinely curious about that we think can bro down and yeah, yeah. Uh, can, can, can handle, huddle. A, we can, handle a dick joke. We can do those if you guys can't handle every... a dick joke, can't come on here. <laughs> yeah. But what, what do you want your show to be? Is it like a Bitcoin show or is this just like a hangout and chat shit? No, it's pretty signal. I mean, we're pretty like we spend a lot more time preparing for these conversations than our listeners would would think. We're we're maybe harming some of their perception but i mean if like we have luke roman on on monday we, we'll spend hours i mean we'll spend i don't know what the number is minimum five hours a piece researching reading pieces coming up with questions yeah. so we do fuck around for like five to ten minutes but we often like really get down to it i think our personalities are i mean we're both really intellectually wound like our favorite thing to do in life is learn and read and so this show is really characterized by uh, tremendous superficiality at points, but also <laughs> tremendous depth. And I think that that's, that's indicative of our, per- of our personalities. Like if you ask the guys that we work with, they'd be like, these two guys know how to bro down, but they're also two of the biggest nerds I've ever met. Right. And so I think that that, that is sort of the mission of the show, yeah, but nerds who can I, sling some great dick jokes from a time. Yeah. To time. <laughs> we, we said this before it clicked though, Danny of really the answer to what we're trying to do with this show we don't know. We're just trying to be ourselves and have conversations we find interesting. Yeah. And if, well, if you want to strap in for the ride, do so, you know? For sure. Well, we've got Luke Groman on in a couple of weeks, so you're going to have to send me your prep. You'll save me 10 okay. hours of work. 
Send it <laughs> we will. We will. We're gonna. I, we'll grill him. I mean, he he's such an original. Obviously, he's repeating a lot of the same themes, but he he just when he was on here last time, he described himself as a catfish who just bottom feeds <laughs> and just takes in information, and that's what he does. Like we asked him, I think in episode one, I think we recorded it. It wasn't it wasn't pre conversation. We just said like, "What's your routine?" And it's interesting to hear him describe his week. A lot of it's just him contemplating, thinking, taking mm. in information, and trying to distill his own original thoughts. And that definitely comes through in his work. Dude, he's That's the an interesting question of Cincinnati. I, I like that yeah. uh, that kind of like peek behind the curtain of what he's actually like. That's a good question. I like that. We've tried to do that a little bit. Like the first time we had Lynn on, or maybe it was the second time, we just did like a Lynn rapid fire. And we asked her a bunch of random bullshit questions. No, were, it had to be the second time, dude. The first time we were just so scared of her that we, scared. we locked <laughs> it up real tight. She's pretty intimidating. freaked out, dude. <laughs> It is a weird environment to come on here, though, especially for for someone like that of like we we mess around completely. We're joking about just complete vulgar nonsense. And then all of a sudden, one of us clicks in with some dense question and the guests like, OK, I guess we're we're doing this, you know? Yeah. Um. All right. I want to hit one, at least this one other thing. Uh, you've had uh, Ramaswamy on. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing you guys have tried to get RFK. Uh, and th- I think these types of dudes are representative of, I'm not saying they're bad people, but I think in a lot of ways I would call them Bitcoin opportunists. Bitcoin has gotten big enough mm-hmm. where they see the ability to infiltrate a fairly ardent community and, and get votes. What are your thoughts on these two dudes or anyone else you want to bring up, what, what was your interaction with Ramaswamy when you had on your thoughts on his takes? Take that wherever you want. So when we had him on, it was in Nashville. Uh, I don't know when it had been, like February, March this year. Um, so it was before he'd announced that he was actually going to run. Um, and the whole time he was talking, he just he's just full of shit. Um, and me and Pete went <laughs> for a walk afterwards, we went to get a coffee. And on that walk, I said to him, I, I bet you this guy runs for president. And it was like six weeks later or whatever, he announced that he was running. Um, but I, I 100% agree that they're just Bitcoin opportunists. Like, these people don't give a fuck about Bitcoin. They're, like, when they come out on stage at the like Bitcoin conference and they're asking for donations, like, it's literally the same thing that ICO scammers did. <laughs> they like Bitcoin, they just want your Bitcoin. Um, and the, the, the funny thing about Vivek is, I was backstage before he went on stage, um, and there was like a group of uh, Bitcoiners just chatting. And he came over and uh, someone asked him what he was going to be talking about. And he, he was kind of talking about strengthening the dollar. Um, I, can't, I can't remember the other points he was trying to hit. Uh, and one of them, though, was like he was going to really push back on the ESG narrative. And one of the Bitcoiners there said, um, you just like adding fuel to the fire, don't do that, talk about CBDCs. And then he goes out on stage, he like does his spiel, like really hits home on the CBDC thing. Everyone's like cheering, sending him sats. None of it was his fucking idea. Like, he doesn't give a fuck about you. He doesn't care about Bitcoin. He's not here to save you. Save your sats. Don't give it to them. <laughs> that would be my message to anyone that thinks that politicians are here. Yeah. I mean, there's a, a long list of politicians. Was it, um, who's the governor or is it the mayor of New York right now? His name is uh, uh, yeah, Eric, Eric Adams, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He babbled about taking his paycheck in Bitcoin and like turns around and fucking stabs everybody in the back. And then what was the mayor of Miami who in 2021 or two started babbling uh, about Suarez. taking money? Suarez, that's it. And then he started he Miami came on the show Coin. Too. 
like yeah this these people are all full of shit they're politicians by nature so they're just they're gonna tell you whatever it is you want to hear and that's their mo you know but i think it's so funny that bitcoiners are like so um i think they're just so excited they're just there's a part of them that's so excited that it's getting accepted by a politician because that and that that kind of gives you the insight that it's like more mainstream now like we're not the weirdos in the corner anymore yeah, but it's but they're it's so critical just, of everything else, and then as soon as a politician says the right. word Bitcoin, they're like on board. I don't understand the the kind of mindset behind that. Um, I mean, I think there's some politicians that truly actually care about Bitcoin, or one. I think Cynthia Lummis actually cares about Bitcoin, and she's like working behind the scenes and passing some like interesting laws in Wyoming. Um, but these people that have like come in and just like, exactly as you said, Dan, like just Bitcoin opportunists. Uh, we have so many of them reach out, like senators or I don't know, I don't know how American politics works. Um, like reach out and say, "Can we come on the show? We want to talk about Bitcoin." And it's just like, why would we want to have you come on and just lie to us for an hour? What's the point? Uh, so yeah, we just completely stopped having any of those conversations. Yeah, I think well, that's the be- for the best. Also, like think about our own stories, guys. It takes a long fucking time to mm-hmm. really even get your head around the significance of this. I mean, you can you can understand the basic talking points quickly, but for the real light bulb moments to go off, you're talking bare minimum dozens of hours. And we minimum. have a propensity to take leadership and think, oh, these people are just different than us. They're smarter than us, blah, blah, blah. These people have no fucking clue what they're talking about, just like the three of us have no fucking clue what we're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. We may have more of a clue what we're talking about with Bitcoin because we've spent now thousands of hours between the three of us but when you have somebody on there that's pulled in all these different directions, has wayward incentives from the political system to begin with, the chances that they really understand the implications and what they're regurgitating isn't just coming from a, a speechwriter or yeah. some kid in their office is very unlikely. Well, also think about the, I mean, even giving them the benefit of the doubt, they probably have 25 to 30 different constituencies they're trying to placate at any one time. They can't, they don't have the time or bandwidth to actually know everything about each one of those industries, sectors, whatever it is. Like they're probably going to an oil conference, then a Bitcoin conference, then a defense contractor conference, and they have no fucking clue about any of it. They just have a 20 year old kid writing them a speech that they're going to read on stage and then peace out and fly somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it is what it is. I wanted to ask you, Danny, you've been around the world, seen a lot of places. Are we in America the fattest people in the world from your point of view? You're pretty good. Yeah, I think you'd be up there. <laughs> uh, Australia's pretty fat, you know. Like it's a weird thing. Everyone imagines like people in Australia to be like beach body surfer. And there's like there's obviously some of that, but there's we've we've got some pretty fat people here. But no, America win that. I mean, you guys yeah. are just batshit crazy at everything. Like whatever whatever it is, you're you more extreme, extreme than the rest of the world. Like Dude. It, it seems to be like across absolutely everything like you have insanely wealthy people in insane poverty at least like for a western world yeah. you have uh, a western country you have like um extremely like polarized politics you have the culture war it's, it's everything is just taken to absolute extremes it's like a stressful place like i love america i like we go there every six weeks if i was going to move anywhere it'd probably be nashville um but you fucking crazy <laughs> Wait, Josh, I love the fact that you brought this up because I'm going to read my a recent Noster That's post weird. I made. Uh, yeah. I've been trying to sling it more on Noster, you know, like leave, leave some of the 
you know, side boob for Twitter, full frontal for uh, Noster. And I was in the grocery store and I just I just couldn't take it. I I'd sent this out. I said, when I'm out in public watching humans in the wild, I find myself consistently looking at certain folks and asking this question. How is it even possible to get that fat? Like when you're 44 years old, can literally barely move around and struggle breathing. What the fuck happened? <laughs> Isn't there a point of fatness where people stop, realize it's ruining their life and make it a huge focus to have some self-respect and, and be less fat? I realize there's legit exceptions like mental illness, depression, hypothyroid, Cushing's, but heavily obese homo sapiens are all over in increasing numbers. It's really hard to wrap your head around, especially if you're a paramedic. I mean, the, the folks are, it's crazy how, how, and it, it does feel to me like it's changed in my lifetime. I'm 33 years old. I feel like America's gotten fatter even since I've been alive. I was but looking I, at I, some, I honestly um, don't get it. Dude, over the last 10 years, it was something like 30% of people were morbidly obese. Now it's like 40% of Americans are morbidly obese. That's wild. We have, Danny, we have a cot for our ambulance that's automatic, right? So we don't have to break our backs lifting people into the back of the ambulance. It's rated for like 750 pounds. It's not uncommon that we get somebody on this thing. take an elephant up. Yeah, and it struggles. Like this thing is struggling to lift this person up in the back of the ambulance. It's it's absurd. That's why. And to your point, Dan, like what comes first though? Does like the obesity come first or the mental illness come first? Because like it's not good for you to be that fat, to be like carting no. around that way. Like, I don't know. It's America's just a, a wild place, but I do love it. Um, but yeah, you guys just take everything to the absolute extreme. Dan, wait till you take your kids to Disney World. That is Not the place to go, man. You you I, watch these people on rascals rolling roaming around like like the, you know you, it's it's a scooter for fat people who are too lazy to walk. So they sit on a. This is not a joke. Like it's, for, it's straight out of the movie Wall-E. These people are cruising around these three hundred pound people who could use the exercise to just walk around the park. But no, they sit on these little scooters and they they roam around running over kids' feet and stuff. And then they they, they listen to they actually allow these people to get into the front of the line. They help them onto the roller coaster or whatever it is. They bring the scooter around to the exit for them so that How they don't the have to do coasters? the minimum amount of walking. <laughs> <laughs> it's unbelievable. Oh my goodness. Man. Dude, I, I see I, kids zipping around my subdivision on these like hoverboards and these electric scooters. Like kids aren't even riding bikes anymore. I think it's no. I think it may be just getting started. I think it may be going high, parabolic here. On the crazy stats about America, I was talking to Matthew Pines when we were at Pacific Bitcoin. Uh, he told me something fucking crazy that I didn't believe I had to look up, but apparently two thirds of kids in America are functionally illiterate. Jesus Christ. Huh? It's absolutely wild. I looked up and it's like two thirds of, uh, I can't remember the, the like the grade, but um, basically can't read. Like it's so at what age? Up. Do you know what age they were talking about? Let me look it up. I can't remember. That's yeah, really maybe uh, we may we may be on the decline, man. Um, <laughs> may <laughs> we may be on the decline. It's still a great place to be. Very thankful to to live in this country, but yeah. everywhere's on the decline though. It's not just America. Yeah, you guys are just doing it faster than everyone else. <laughs> Danny, this oh, was man. a pleasure, man. Uh, no, thank you got you anything having, you want to add? Anything you want to end with? I mean, I would tell you to hand off your show, but you're the competition, so fuck you. We won't have you do that. <laughs> no, that's no, all right. Anything uh, you want to say on your way out or, or it's up, anything we didn't cover? No, I don't think so. Um, 
Yeah. Did we go through everything you wanted to get through? Yeah. Yeah. This was a lot of fun, man. Really yeah, enjoyed it. Yeah, it was good. It. Appreciate you having me on. This oh, is the you first weren't lying about that like jersey this. either. I washed that jersey. That thing did not shrink. It's perfect. But I good. saw Peter just got a new version of it, and I kind of want that one now. So Yeah, we we'll, kind of uh, rubbed we'll you on that one. Those. We sold you the old one. You're right. You, you guys, guys just knew unloaded too. the you, old inventory. You looked <laughs> straight in our eyes and sold us the old jersey. God damn it. <laughs> send me the address and I'll, uh, I'll send you a new oh, one. I was just kidding, man. We'll pay you for it. Appreciate you, Danny. Keep up the good work. No, thank you for Tell Peter me on. to go fuck that. himself. And uh, we will, will see do. you guys in another conference. Love it. Thank you. Take care, man. As always, thanks for listening. And please leave us a review on the podcast app you're using. And if that podcast app is not Fountain, we don't understand why not. Because you could be getting paid in sats while you listen to our show. Our DMs are always open, as well as our email. Please send us anything you think, good or bad. We will just ignore the bad.